Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma, a thoracic medical oncologist. For this episode, I'm grateful to have Dr. Antonio Cages and Dr. Kristen Higgins for a new series of our tumor board. Dr. Cages is a medical oncologist at the Hospital General Universitario Gregorio Marañón in Madrid. Dr. Higgins is an associate professor and medical director of the Winshed Cancer Institute of Emory University and Department of Radiation Oncology. Dr. Cages and Higgins. Thank you for making the time to be here today. Thank you, Dr. Duma, for the kind invitation, and thank you to the EISLC for this opportunity to join you in Lung Cancer Considered Postcards. I second that. Thank you, Dr. Duma. It's really exciting to be here with you today and to be talking about lung cancer and, and tumor board formats and, and doing this podcast with you. This is a great opportunity for a wonderful discussion. So thank you, the two of you. I do have to disclose to our listeners that Dr. Higgins and Dr. Cadges are friends. So we're going to be referring to each other by first name slash nickname for Dr. Cadges. This is a series of podcasts that we're doing about tumor birth, particularly about difficult cases. And some of you may agree that close to 50% of the cases that we discuss in our tumor birth are stage three, no small cell lung cancer. So today we're going to talk about unresectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer. This is a follow-up after we talked earlier in another episode about our resectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer. We understand that not all information can be discussed in 40 minutes and their patient individual characteristics, but we'll do our best. So here's our case. It's a 42-year-old woman comes to the ER due to right shoulder pain that has worsened over the last two months, and she also has a dry cough. In the ER, the Texas ray shows a right middle lobe, four centimeter mass. She undergoes a CT scan that shows similar findings, this time with enlarged ixylateral mediastinal and bilateral paratracheal lymph nodes. The patient has a limited smoking history, 10-pack year histories during her college and master's degree, she has no significant comorbidities, is not taking no other medications besides Tylenol or acetaminophen PRN. The patient is seen by surgery and she underwent a mediastinoscopy with biopsy-proven mediastinal and paratracheal lymph nodes with adenocarcinoma of the lung. The PDL1 is 1 to 2%. The brain MRI is done to complete staging is negative. The patient has lost 10 pounds since she was seen in the ER. Now she presents to the multidisciplinary clinic in which she's going to meet with medical oncology, Dr. Cadges, and radiation oncology, Dr. Higgins. So we're going to start working out the case. First, Tony, as you see this patient in the clinic, what will be your first step to complete staging for her? Hi, Nervius. So I think we need uh, to complete body staging with a PET CT scan 
that can be performed for two purposes. First, for staging to know if whether or not the disease is uh, limited to the to the chest, and to rule out the presence of any extra thoracic uh, metastasis. But also, we can use that PET CT scan for radiation uh, planification purposes. So we can use that PET CT scan for for these two things. I think it's already brain uh, scanned with a brain MRI. Um, uh, we usually do either CT or MRI, whatever is most convenient in, in terms of time. And uh, we also refer to the pulmonologist to have a pulmonary lung function uh, before taking decisions of, of, of the tumor management. But I think the PET CT scan is, is mandatory for this case. Yeah, and I agree with that. And, and one thing about the, the PET CT, that's important is the timing of when it was done. Um, I think here in the United States, some of these workups for our stage three patients take a long time, especially in the era of COVID. And so sometimes we'll meet patients and they may have had a PET CT that was done 10 weeks ago. And in my mind, that's really you know, outdated and you would expect that there would be interval tumor growth. So I would probably just keep that in mind in terms of the timing of the PET scan. If it's outdated, it's it's always a, a good idea to repeat it. And usually we're able to get them approved by insurance, you know, in terms of saying that this PET scan is really needed for definition of the radiation treatment volumes, like Tony had mentioned. So Kristen, that's a good point because, you know, this patient was in the ER and she had a CT scan. So for your point of view as a radiation oncologist, we talk about the PET how long is a good interval between, you know, the CT scan and for you to see a patient? Because uh, sometimes, you know, from the ER all the way to the brain MRI, there's several weeks. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it's three months that, you know, it takes a patient to, to get to us, especially if they're seeking second opinions and, and things like that. I think an optimal interval for those staging studies is, you know, from you know, one to six weeks. Once it gets older than six weeks, I start to get a little bit nervous, especially about tumor progression, especially for some of these larger tumors um, that may be growing more quickly. And as we talk about staging, you know, the patient went through a mediastinoscopy, but uh, you can ask a hundred thoracic oncologists about, you know, how to stage these stage three patients, and they may give you several answers. So I will start with Kristen. Do you have these patients go to mediastinoscopies? Do you do EVAS or do you, are you okay with a PET scan, for example, when determining the lymph node involvement, for example? Yeah, I would say it's ideal to um, have pathologic confirmation of you know N2 or N3 disease. So we always try to biopsy the mediastinal lymph nodes that are involved on the PET scan. Usually we you know, try to get that PET scan first, and then we'll we'll do a, a biopsy. And our preferred method is an EBUS. So we usually work with our interventional pulmonologists to get that EBUS done. I know some centers may not have access to an interventional pulmonologist, so sometimes that can be a little bit more. So Tony, for you at your institution, any preference between those three, or do you combine the PET and the procedure, for example? Right. So we usually uh, combine the uh, findings of the PET 
PET CT scan with the results of the EVAS. Um, only those patients uh, were uh, there is a high suspicion of lymph node, and the EVAS is not um, feasible to obtain a, a good um, sample for diagnosing purposes. Is proposed for uh, mediastinoscopy. So mediastinoscopy is only uh, is a second step in case um, an EVAS is negative, and we need to rule out a specific location that the the EVOS is not able to, to reach. So uh, for tumors that are central, either central tumors or larger than four centimeters, we, we need to be sure that um, the staging of the mediastinum is N0, especially for those who are undergo who will, will undergo surgery, but even for N1 or N2 uh, disease, it's very important for volume planification for addition therapy or for enrollment on clinical trials. So the N staging is, is critical, remains critical, and I will say eighty percent of our, of our of our procedures uh, are based on the findings of a PET CT scan and a dedicated EVAS for mediastinal uh, staging. Only those that. Uh, with these two tests, uh, we don't have enough information from the mediastinal nodal status. We go to a, a mediastinoscopy. So little by little, mediastinoscopy is 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 going lower in in incidence. We are doing less and less mediastinoscopies in our center. So to summarize the part of the staging of this patient, it would be the PET scan, hopefully closer to the bicep with the two of you, the EVAS, the PET scan. We help target, you know, to confirm the leave node involvement. And if unfortunately there is no tissue there, then amidiastinoscopy would be the next step. Is that a correct summary? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And before COVID, we always say, you know, the bigger the patty, the more the fun. But the role here about bringing surgeons to patients like this, and I would love to hear your experience. I have, I tend to have my surgeons in speed dial before I used to see them a lot and just show up to their offices, but that has changed a little bit. So I'm going to start with Tony. Will you call a surgeon to see this patient, for example? Yes, definitely. Yes. I mean, all these patients are presented in tumor boards and thoracic surgeons are present in, in all the in all the all the cases all the stage 3 cases irrespectively of if they are potentially resectable or not it's obviously that uh, for an N3 patient like this uh, the surgeon will refuse to operate this patient but he will be or she will be always there to, to give an, op- an opinion because sometimes we need we need them for for mediastinal um, staging for for lymph node mediastinal confirmation. So even if it's not going to the surgical room for for curative surgery, we still uh, need them for diagnosis purposes or to get more tissue to do um, uh, genotyping of a tumor, especially in younger patients with a very low or or negative smoking status that we suspect any driver mutation. Sometimes um, we have a very limited amount of tissue to make the correct diagnosis, uh, but we can sus- suspect that that patient harbors are driver mutations based on, on uh, epidemiological, epidemiological features. And so that we need, we need more tissue and the only way to get more tissue is surgery. So definitely, I, I will have always a, a thoracic surgeon to discuss every single patient. Yeah. And I just, just to add to that, I think 
you know, the major decision point is determining if the patient is resectable versus unresectable. And really it should be the surgeon that makes that determination, even though, again, this patient has M3 disease, but I think our surgical colleagues appreciate being involved in every conversation in terms of determining resectability. And I think it helps us, you know, maintain a collaborative spirit within our multidisciplinary group, you know, to run as many cases by our surgeons and give them the opportunity for input. And I think that Kristen really marks the importance of how lung cancer is no longer, you know, a one specialty. We have to work, you know, together as a team. And something I love about this tumor board with the two of you is that, you know, we have a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist. So now we're going to imagine that that person met a very strong female surgeon and that um, say that unfortunately she's not resectable. So Kristen, now that the disease is considered not to be resectable, what would be the standard radiation dose and schedule for a patient like this one, understanding that we don't have all the data about the patient and you don't have the scans in front of you? Yeah, so the, the standard radiation dose for an unresectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer is um, 60 gray delivered in two gray per fraction, daily treatments Monday through Friday for six weeks. I would say that most centers now are using intensity modulated radiation therapy to um, you know, reduce the radiation dose to surrounding normal organs. And that's you know, fairly standard um, in the United States and across the world. And if you get to estimate, you know, sometimes it can be very difficult for some patients. In this case, we have a younger patient, but sometimes I have older patients that have other issues. If you could estimate what percentage of patients are able to complete, you know, the 60 gray without interactions or, you know, having difficulty getting it and delays in, in the therapy? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say with modern radiation techniques, and sort of proactive management of adverse events, I would say 95 to 100% of my patients are able to complete treatment without delay. It's pretty rare that we have a patient that needs a significant treatment break, which is really a a testament to, you know, better care coordination with the medical specialties and so forth. So really, it's pretty rare that we have a patient that gets a delay in treatment or can't make it through treatment. So, as we move, so that we set out the dose, radiation oncology is doing the planning, and now she goes to meet Tony. So, Tony, at your institution and practice, what would be your choice of systemic treatment, understanding the geographic differences, you know, with practice in the US, Europe, Asia, and South Latin America? Right. So that's very, very important issue. So in our institution and for fit patients, we usually uh, use cisplatin-based combinations. Usually at, in Spain and in our, in our institution, cisplatin plus vinorelvin is a standard of care for most patients, both for squamous and non-squamous histology. And we use oral vinorelvin in the uh, plus eight of treatment that is very convenient for, for the patient because they have, they have not to come to the infusion room and they can take the pill at home when they're going to bed so they don't have nausea or vomiting after the intake of the, of the pill. 
that is very convenient. But we understand that that's not uh, the issue, the, the the situation for other countries or other regions where this platinum plus etoposide uh, remains a standard of care, as no other trial has demonstrated better uh, survival and better outcomes to this platinum and etoposide based chemo. Also, for non-squamous histology, we use this platinum plus pemetrexid based on a better toxicity profile compared to this platinum etoposide for, for this population. And for unfit patients that unfortunately are um, a majority of, of, of cases, especially in, in different areas in our, in our um, in the, the area of patients that we attend is an unfavorable population. So we have many unfit patients. Uh, we understand for unfit patients uh, either with uh, organ dysfunction or older age or fragile patients for whatever the socioeconomical or medical issues, we prefer to use weekly carboplatin plus paclitaxel that allow us to stop the treatment if we detect some uh, toxicity and they don't go through severe or, or, or very um, alarming toxicity. So that's our preferred regimen for unfit patients, car weekly carboplatin. And, and I love the difference, you know, because you're telling me that cisplatin vitriol bean is the go-to. And, and I think here in the U.S. it may not be, you know, a common regimen. Um, I think the placitaxel carboplatin, I agree with you, is the treatment of choice for some unfit patients. And this question we got to the both of you. So if we have a patient, same case, but she has a performance status of close to two, I would say two, the choice of doing sequential versus concurrent. Um, I'm going to start with Kristen. How do you feel when, you know, we do these patients that are, let's say, 75, chronic, chronic kidney disease, bad arthritis due to other issues, plus minus diabetes, and, you know, you're considering to do the sequential instead of the concurrent therapy? Yeah, I mean, these patients, we see them a lot. That's the reality. Um, and there actually hasn't been a great treatment strategy for these PS2 patients. Unfortunately, you know, they were excluded from, you know, the concurrent chemoradiation trials. They were excluded from the Pacific trials. Um, so I think this is a real unmet need in the stage three space. We tend to do two approaches um, at Emory where I practice. And, and one would be, one would be radiation alone, hypofractionated radiation. We would do four gray, um, per fraction for 15 fractions, and then observe um, if they're not, you know, if my medical oncologist feels very nervous about doing any systemic therapy, which many times is the case, especially for patients that, you know, are wheelchair bound and, and really, you know, we're worried about toxicities with chemotherapy. For other patients, we will occasionally do sequential chemotherapy followed by radiation. You know, there is a AstraZeneca trial right now that is studying that um, PS2 population, and they have a trial where they give chemotherapy followed by radiation, um, followed by dervalumab. So that study is underway. And there's actually another great study that recently activated by SWOG that I really like. It's a, a single arm phase two trial of hypofractionated radiation, 60 grain, 15 fractions, like I talked about, and then that's followed by atezolizumab. And that just recently opened. And I, I really like that approach 
I think that, you know, both of those trials will be great. And it's nice to see some studies finally in the PS2 space for our stage three patients, because they, we really, we see them very, very frequently and we struggle with what to do for this population, especially in the era of immunotherapy. And for you, Tony, how is this discussion or decisions made when, you know, the patient has a performance status of two? I completely agree with Christine. I think it's a very heterogeneous um, population, extremely difficult to take um, formal decisions, and it's pretty common in our daily practice to find these PS2 patients with a locally advanced and resectable uh, lung cancer. And because of many reasons, it can be for the tumor itself, the patient is symptomatic because of the, of the tumor or the performance status decreases because of that, or because all the comorbidities the patient the patient has or the age that sometimes we find uh, 90 years old um, otherwise uh, well patient that has uh, incidental finding of uh, a stage three unresectable tumor and we need to decide the best treatment approach also based on patient's expectations and if feasible, we try to do um, always concurrent chemo radiation, especially with weekly caroplatin plus paclitaxel. And we use sequential chemo followed by radiation in those patients that we are not sure about staging or uh, they have a very large volume that uh, don't allow, doesn't allow uh, planific a safe planification of radiation therapy. And after induction, we, we, we reevaluate the patient for either concurrent or sequential uh, ra radiation therapy and completely agree with um, the idea of uh, these new trial designs that change the treatment delivery of radiation therapy um, followed by, by immunotherapy, right? Based on the Pacific trial that where a systemic immunotherapy can reduce the risk of both um, local regional failure or metastatic disease. So these um, trials are, uh, are really important to be conducted because we'll answer many questions that we have in our daily clinical practice. And we don't have um, the right trials, the right answers to, to discuss with the patients. I, th I think it's uh, very difficult. It depends on the institution. We are in an institution where we can talk with the radiation therapies, with the thoracic surgeons, but we know that not all centers are equal. They don't, they may not have the radiation oncology at the other side of the of the of the aisle and to talk with them directly. And it takes some time. So decisions can be delayed or, or the conversations can be delayed. So um, it will differ among institutions. But I think the performance status of two because of comorbidities that can be handled, I think we still prefer concurrent chemo radiation if feasible. If, if there are other reasons, then we do sequential or um, if we have a clinical trial that is very rare to find clinical trials for PS2 patients in this indication, we always try to enroll patients in clinical trials, of course. One population that I find that I struggle with the most are patients that have um, Alzheimer's or dementia. And those patients are just, um, you know, it's really difficult because of the coordination that goes into patients that get concurrent chemoradiation and, and the caregiver support that is needed. And, and I really just struggle with what to do with those patients because many times it's just too much to give them concurrent chemoradiation, you know, Physiologically, they may be okay, but you know, not having you know the, the the cognitive abilities to understand why 
side effects are happening and what to do. That's just a really difficult clinical scenario. And, you know, this increases the importance that we need to design clinical trials that we include all patients. And, you know, the area of stage three, no small cell lung cancer because before Pacific was like an area in which there was not a lot of things going on. But we still need to help the recruitment of patients that kind of represent the population that we treat, you know, a patient with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, because otherwise we end in tumor boards like this one saying a repetitive sentence. Well, in the clinical trial, the resulting performance status is zero to one, and most patients were very fit. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. We have to get better at being more inclusive with our inclusion criteria for clinical trials. It's a it's a huge problem, and I think that's something that we really need to push for in the next few years. So as we move forward, so historically, the patient has completed chemotherapy radiation, and I want to ask the both of you, so now that she finished chemo radiation, we know about Pacific data and the use of Dubarlumab. So how the two of you select who is going to go into the consolidation with the Dubarlumab? And we're going to start with Tony. Well, that's a tricky question because um, here in, in Europe, we have a different, completely different scenario uh, to the U.S. Um, because of the EMA approval, um, well, first of all, uh, the patient has to be recovered from previous toxicities. And we need a CT scan performed uh, later than one month after the, end, after the end of chemo radiation to confirm that the patient is either in a stable disease or partial response to rule out any possibilities of progressive disease. And then we consider the patient for uh, one year consolidation to Valumab if there is no contraindication for um, any anti-immune disorder, autoimmunity disorder or whatever. The point is that we can only prescribe one year Dubaluma for those patients that have brought a tumor with a pedial one tumor positive expression, and that's it, 1% or above, because um, the EMA uh, restricted the indication of Dubaluma in the Pacific trial to patients with pedial one positive based on a post-hoc uh, survival analysis that were requested by the regulator. So for any patients with either PDL1 negative or unknown PDL1 status that are very common, I will say one third of the patients or one fourth of the patients may be in that situation. They are not candidate to one year Durbalumab, consolidation Durbalumab. So the key question here is to obtain tissue to get the PDL1 status, to get a PDL1 status positive to, 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 to put this patient on Durbalumab. What about you, Kristen? How is that decision of putting patients in the world map? Yeah, so it, I guess it's probably a little bit different in the United States. Um, I will say we try to do biomarker testing on our stage three patients to see if we can capture any driver mutations. We do, we have a trial, the LORA trial open at Emory. So if we do identify somebody with an EGFR mutation, then we certainly would um, see if they would be a, a candidate for that trial because it, it, it may be that that osimertinib is better for that patient population. There is some emerging data that supports that, but that's still an unanswered question. That's kind of an aside. But for our, you know, our standard patients, you know, if they have, like Tony said, recovered from their high-grade toxicities from the concurrent chemoradiation and they have no evidence of progression on their CT scan, then we will move them on to Dravalumab. Um, and that is really, regardless of their pd one status, 
as that's not required in the United States. You know, we do have a certain uh, percentage of patients that have autoimmune diseases that are not candidates for immunotherapy. And, and I would say that's the patient population that is not getting immunotherapy at our center. And that's probably only maybe like 10% of the patients we see. So I would say we're probably getting a higher percentage of patients onto consolidative immunotherapy, you know, here in the United States, because we don't have those same restrictions that our European colleagues have. And I think it's important, you know, about the differences in practice and also access to duberlumab. In many countries of Latin America, you know, we won't have this discussion because there is no access. And I think having this tumor burst allows, you know, to discuss all those aspects and practice differences because the drug, in fact, is expensive and is not available in countries like my own country in Venezuela. Like, it would be very hard to find duberlumab for patients like this or just chemotherapy in general. And also there are there are also um, situations that we are living now that we didn't um, have before. So a patient after a chemo radiation therapy, the patient uh, undergo a new bronchoscopy to get more tissue to test for the pdl one status because it was unknown or either negative. You don't know if after the treatment change. So if you get one cell positive out a hundred is considered positive. And then the, the, the patient has the possibility to get durbalumab. That is after chemo radiation, the, the, the treatment that has improved overall survival in this patient. So we struggle to get tissue even after chemo radiation to get patients into durbalumab. So we are doing after chemo radiation biopsies in case we didn't have uh, enough tissue for PDL1 testing, or it was PDL1 negative before the treatment. So look how things change in, 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 the, in, in the last months. Yeah, that's super interesting. I would love to see data on what percentage of patients go from PDL1 negative to positive after chemo radiation. That's very right. I think there's a very interesting aspect. You know, there's some data, and I think it comes from some data of Dr. Mansfield from Mayo about, you know, the, how ter- heterogeneous video one is. And there's also some data from the doc, Dr. Don's lab mentioned that there may be some upregulation after radiation. So I think this, this is, you know, there, Tony, do you have something that we're all very interested in? <laughs> and um, I think somebody say in one of our podcasts, and I promise I was going to give them credit, but I forgot that if you take a tiny piece or a pepperoni pizza, it's most likely you're going to get a cheese pizza, right? So that's how bioxys are. It's just a small sample. <laughs> yeah. that's I, a great I forgot who said that because it's too good. <laughs> <laughs> now, just, I had a question. When do you think Map will become available in some of these Latin America countries that you were talking about? Well, I think it all depends, you know, it may be available in the private sector. So these are people that have private insurance, which is the minority of the population. Mm-hmm. In countries like my country and Venezuela, they're currently in a humanitarian um, economic crisis. So I think probably in 10 years, but that's just a stipulation. But in Colombia, it is available for people that have high socioeconomic status, but for the people that unfortunately are getting healthcare in the public system, it'd be very, very rare. And it also depends on the geographic location, if you're in the capital or you're in a rural area. Mm. So, you know, when we talk about all these advancements, I think it's also important to mention that these advancements apply to only one small percentage of the population, because in many other areas, 
it is limited. I'm doing projects, um, including a project in Haiti, in which most patients with lung cancer, when they're diagnosed metastatic, they're sent home because it's not considered to be financially possible to treat a patient with metastatic lung cancer. So that's so unfortunate. Yeah. And, you know, this is what I love that both of you are in different geographic locations. So we can learn that, you know, Tony is going and doing biopsies afterwards. And that's so interesting. We are moving a little bit forward. So one question is to Tony is when somebody experienced early toxicity with Duvalumab. So we know from the Pacific study that, you know, the toxicity rates were not that high, but again, this is patient clinical trial population, you know, fit zero to one. But I have seen, and I have seen more patients develop this grade two pneumonitis. So after you treat it with steroids and they're improved, what do you do, Tony, for these patients? And this is a very important question because many people are encountering this in which after three doses or five doses, the patient has a grade two pneumonitis. Right. This is a very, very relevant question because as you, uh, as you said before, this was a highly selected population treated in the Pacific trial, but most of the patients that we treat with rubalumab uh, will never enter in that trial because of comorbidity. So uh, chronic coughing could be um, a situation where you don't know is a COPD uh, related or is an onset of uh, pneumonitis or of immune related pneumonitis. So you will have always the, 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 the question of whether or not that symptoms are related to immune-related pneumonitis. So uh, I think it's extremely, uh, we, we have learned based off on, on our mistakes and we have created now a fast track in the hospital for these patients so we can get um, done a bronchoscopy with a bronchoalveolar lavage and a dedicated CT scan uh, to study these patients in the first 24, 48 hours, because we know time is critical to manage these patients. The earlier you start steroids, the better outcomes these patients have. Uh, but of course, you need to, to rule out uh, the risk of infections because sometimes you have uh, atypical um, pneumonias like a pneumocystis infection that is, is quite common if the patient is in, is on steroids, especially after chemoradiation, for whatever the reason you are using steroids. And now we have COVID uh, as well. So it's even more complicated. So you need to perform a, um, a PCR for SARS-CoV-2, and then you need to rule out uh, infection disease. As some patients, you put on anti-empiric empiric antibiotics just in case, uh, but you are not sure to use steroids until the um, um, the microbiologists rule out there is an infection, but you need to start on steroids. And then when you start on steroids, you, we usually start at, at high dose. We don't use intermediate dose or low dose. If the suspicions of pneumonitis is high, we start with um, methylprednisolone one milligram per kilo or higher. And if the patient is not improving in the first in the first week, in the first three days, we escalate dose of, of prednisone or even we add other uh, biologic, biologic therapies because we know this could be, this could be really serious or life-threatening in some cases. So we uh, manage these cases very aggressively. The question is, when this patient recovers from the pneumonitis, um, should we um, resume the treatment with rubalumab or not? 
So I don't think there is a clear answer for that. And we need to individualize for every single patient. We try to, to resume treatment with Uvalumab in case the pneumonitis went very well with esterates only. And it, it, it didn't take longer than four weeks to recover. For cases that are grade two or higher and management is complicated, we are afraid of um, resuming Uvalumab because the second episode of pneumonitis could be even more severe. But again, there is no clear guidelines on what to do in this case. And so we are learning of our own experience, but it's critical to have the pulmonologist and the radiologist in the, in, the, in the same page. We have the fast track for these cases, so we don't want to lose any patient because of uh, immune-related uh, pneumonitis because these patients are cured or, or potentially cured. So we need to fight for these patients as much as we can. And I think something that really, you know, helps me decide is also the characteristics of the tumor, right? If we have a patient that had a squamous disease or has a good performance status and something else, I think their patient unique characteristics. You know, talking to the two of you has been a great opportunity. We did have, we had chatted a lot about assessment and treatment, but there is something I really want to ask the two of you. And it's, as Christian mentioned, we are doing more and more NGS in these patients with early OR advanced, locally advanced disease. And the question is, where is EGFR, ALK, and ROS disease? For examples, we know from the metastatic setting, these patients have the limited benefit from immunotherapy. In some cases, we overall response rate of 0%. So this question is to the two of you. So we have a patient, same case, but in this case, the NGS was sent and the patient EGFR exon 19 mutation. Would you change the plan? Would you put the patient in immunotherapy? One, if there is no clinical trial for these patients. The clinical trial makes it easy, right? You just put yeah. them on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets much harder in the absence of the clinical trial. So there is no clinical trial. They're closed because uh, I think we need, I think closed. we need a specific trials in this patient population. Um, well, we have the Pacific trial that we know the the patients uh, may benefit from the from the treatment. Uh, it was a, I think it was a six percent of patients on each arm of the trial that harbor um, EFR mutation, and there was a trend through a better PFS in the group of patients with EFR mutation as well. But obviously, because of the small sample size, it was not statistically significant. So we don't have the answer to that, and we know as 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 uh, just uh, told before that the efficacy of immune checkpoint inhibitors, at least as monotherapy, is limited. And there is a risk of sequential toxicities when you use uh, immunotherapy followed by an EFR TKI. There was the um, phase two trial uh, led by Dr. Lisberg in first line of EFR mutant um, non small cell lung cancer patients with PDL1 positive tumors with no response to pembrolizumab. But the most worrisome thing was that uh, most of the patients that um, subsequently uh, were treated with an EFR TKI developed, developed um, severe adverse events like pneumonitis or hepatitis. So if you put a patient on and, uh, with consolidation durvalumab and you have a progressive disease at eight months and you need to start on EFR TKI, there is a risk of severe toxicity. So what to do in this, in this, in this 
these cases. I think that we have good data of simertinib in stage three uh, resected cases from the ADORA trial, especially in the uh, stage 3A with a hazard ratio of 0.12 was in the overall survival um, uh, analysis. And there are dedicated trials for these populations going on. There is the uh, Laura trial, the Laura trial, that is very similar to the Pacific trial design that there is consolidation of, of osimertinib after chemoradiation, same way as, as in Pacific, but the control arm is placebo, it's not uh, durvalumab. So we won't, we won't have the, answer, the right answer if durvalumab or osimertinib is better for, for this situation. And then there is the neoadaura. It's a new trial of neoadjuvant osimertinib, um, either as a single agent or in combination with chemo for potentially resectable stage through, uh, two and three disease with activating mutations. So I think it's important to, to have uh, dedicated the signs for EGFR, um, EGFR mutant population. It will be more difficult for other mutations because are less common, like, like ALK or ROS1, that we eventually have a straight streak with, with this, uh, harboring these this, this mutations. But I don't think we will get the evidence of a well, uh, well-designed large phase three randomized clinical trial. I think it's not feasible for the very small number of patients that there are, are around the globe. Yeah, I would say to second Tony's comments at our center, it's uh, generally a pretty involved conversation with the patient and our medical oncologist and usually a shared decision um, in terms of, of what to do next, just because there's not a clear answer. So I, I what I would say is, you know, if there's not a clinical trial, I still may have not put the patient after the discussion. And, you know, as we add more mutations, we add more questions. So I only included three, but we're up to seven now. And if we include KRAS, probably more. So as we're wrapping up the podcast, we like to ask our guests, how are tumor boards run at your institution? So I have been in three different institutions during my training and now as faculty and each institution has a different date and a different time. Some of them are at 7 a.m. on Monday. Some of them are at the end of the day. So, Antonio, when and how are the tumor boards run at your institution? Mondays, 1 p.m. Every Monday, 1 p.m. And it's a fantastic tumor board because we are all friends. There are very good atmosphere, very um, great uh, colleague uh, collaboration among uh, thoracic surgeons, uh, radiation oncologists, pulmonologists, uh, radiologists, um, nuclear medicine physicians. So it's great. It's great. We have uh, we spend there uh, an average of one hour one and a half or two hours discussing every single new case that is presented in our institution or cases that we need to make a decision on their uh, tumor journey because there are some complications or new situations. And we discuss every single patient for treatment with lung cancer there. And as being raised by a Spanish grandma, I have to ask, do you have lunch if it's 1 p.m. on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> you know that here in Spain, we have lunch after 3 p.m., so no. <laughs> okay, so then you eat after the tumor bird and we then need, you take the siesta. We, we, right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> but now with the COVID restrictions, we can even eat at, at, the, at the meeting. So it's completely forbidden right now in our institution. 
But it still sounds good to me. Two more more, lunch, and then siesta. It still sounds like a very good combination to me. So, Christian, how's the Timber Board run at, run at your institution? So we meet once a week at 5 p.m. on Tuesdays. We have representation from every group, um, RADOC, MEDOC, our surgeons, pathology, radiology, clinical trials, and so forth. If one of the groups can't be there for a national meeting per se, then we'll cancel the tumor board just because we really feel that you need representation from every group to make good decisions. We moved to a virtual format after or during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I actually prefer that. I think it allows for um, more participation for people that may be working at a different campus or, you know, whatnot. I think it just feels more inclusive. Um, And I think everybody's been a big fan of that in general. I would say every stage three patient gets presented at tumor board just because it is such a heterogeneous disease and you really need the input of all the different specialties, but probably not every new lung cancer patient. Um, I don't think we don't have the bandwidth for that with our one hour once a week, but certainly anything that needs, you know, more than a, a single specialty management comes to tumor board. And it's a great time for us to collaborate with our colleagues. We also go over new clinical trials that are launching so that we're all aware and that that we're not missing opportunities for our patients. We do have some coordination with a a tumor registrar, which kind of helps us, you know, with creation of the tumor board list and making sure that um, we have all of our um, ducks in a row um, from, from that standpoint. So I think it helps to have a little bit of institutional support to run the tumor board as well. It makes it more successful. And as we are, you and I are in the U.S. and it's 5 p.m., does this include dinner afterwards or not? No, no, it never Um, did. I would always get so hungry. (laughs) Sometimes I bring snacks because it, or some caffeine to sort of give me energy. (laughs) So there was a sarcoma uh, tumor board at Mayo when I was training. And it was on Tuesday at 5 p.m. And there was a tumor board that was attended most by the fellows. And it's because they had pizza, very good pizza. So you will see like these fellows that you knew wanted to do multiple myeloma in the sarcoma tumor board Friday, on a Tuesday at 6 p.m. And it was all the pizza that attracted fellows and even residents to the sarcoma tumor board. So we are wrapping up the podcast. I would like to thank you all for listening. I also would like to thank our guests, Dr. Antonio Calles and Dr. Kristen Higgins for making the time to speak with us. Also, please share with us any challenging cases. We are open to discuss unique cases. You can send it to us at podcast at islc.org. Thank you, Dr. Calles. Thank you, Dr. Higgins. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Remember, we are up first and third Mondays of every month. Like the podcast, share it. We are going to continue to expand our tumor boards. And as always, there's always space to talk more about stage three, no small cell lung cancer. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.